This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Please remain standing for this morning's scripture reading from John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. As I mentioned last week, in these I am statements, they're not random, right? They're in a context. They're in an immediate context, but then they're also in a much larger context, a context of redemptive history, a context where God has been at work from the very beginning. And in Genesis chapter three, when sin enters the world, God begins his rescue mission. And the whole story of the Bible is about God chasing, God pursuing, God reconciling. So it's in this context that Jesus is sent as the redeemer, as the savior. And so in order to understand what Jesus is saying and its implications, that is, what does it mean when he says, I am the light of the world? When did it happen? What's the context? I wanna ask three simple questions this morning. The first is, what's going on? Then what does it mean? And then how does it apply? So that's what we're doing this morning. First, what is going on? In John chapters five through 10, some people call this the festival cycle. And the reason is, is because there are three festivals that Jesus attends during these chapters. And this whole section of John's gospel is characterized by conflict between Jesus and the Jewish authorities, and it keeps increasing. In our passage, the festival is the Feast of Booths, also called the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's called this because during this feast, which happened in October, September in our calendar in the fall, the whole point was for everyone to come to celebrate God's provision and rescuing of his people from Egypt, particularly in uh, Moses leading them out of Egypt and all of God's provision, right? So they're wandering in the wilderness and God is leading them by day with a cloud and by night with a pillar of fire. And God is providing for them in every way. And they were wandering in the wilderness and they had no structures to live in that were permanent. And so in order to look back on all of that and to experience it, they would stay in these booths during this festival. Now, Jesus 
uh, was getting pretty famous. Uh, Jesus's teaching was catching on. People were curious about who he was. And so as everyone's about to go to the festival, Jesus's brothers ask him in John chapter seven, so are you coming? Are you coming with us? Because you know, everyone's gonna be there. So if you really are the Messiah, now would be a good time to make it known. Now they say this in unbelief clearly. And Jesus's response to them is, uh, I'm not going with you. Uh, I'm not going now. So they go on. And while they're there, John tells us about all of the confusion. First of all, that Jesus isn't there. And then when people are wondering, where is he? They start giving their opinion about who he might be. So for some people, Jesus is a prophet. So for some people, Jesus must be the Christ. For some people, Jesus is a demon. So John gives us all of these opinions. And then in chapter seven, verse 14, it says about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. So Jesus just shows up. John chapter seven, verse 14, he just shows up. And when people see him, oh, there's Jesus. He's standing up there and now he's teaching. And Jesus says this. It says, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me as the scripture has said, then he quotes the scripture, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So here everyone is at one of the most important feasts in the year. And Jesus shows up, stands up, quotes scripture and says, that's me. I will give you life. Now, obviously to come to Jesus and drink means to believe in him. It means to enter into a trusting, ongoing personal relationship with him. So to come to Jesus would be to come to him as a person, right? He's there, come to me. And then the image of drinking implies not merely intellectual assent, but actual participation with, actual relationship with. And when that happens, when a person comes to him and a person trusts in him and a person has a relationship with him, Jesus says, out of their heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this happens on what's called the last day. John calls it the great day. This is the pinnacle of it all. In verse 20, of our passage, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Now, the context is, remember, this is the same, same day, right? It's the same feast. And Jesus has been going back and forth with the religious leaders. They're trying to figure out who he is. They wanna arrest him. They can't quite do it. John tells us because his time had not yet come. And this time, Jesus speaks up. In verse 20, it says, he spoke in the treasury, as he taught in the temple. Now, this actually is really important. This is really important to know where Jesus is when he spoke. You see, in this vicinity, it probably doesn't mean in the treasury. It probably means in the vicinity of the treasury. It's not like he was behind uh, the walls and he, his disciples had access to the great wealth that was in the temple. It just means he was in the vicinity, right? And so while he's there, we also know that it was in this area, there were these four huge lamps. I mean, huge. Some commentators say that the priests, when they were putting oil in these lamps, would have to climb many, many feet into the air to climb up to pour oil in these huge lamps. And there were four of them. And what would happen in the evening during this feast is that they would light these lamps. 
And when they would light the lamps, because it was on a hill, it would shine light over the whole city. And why did they do this? Well, they did this in the evening to commemorate the fact that it wasn't just during the day when God was leading his people in the wilderness that he would guide them with the the cloud, but also at night there would be a pillar of fire so that in Exodus, let's see, I think I wrote it down. Exodus 13, 21 through 22, it says this, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So you see, these lamps were to show God's provision, God's guidance, because in that fire, in that pillar, in the cloud was God, God's very presence. And that's what the lamps were to depict. Some sources attest that this happened every evening, the lighting of the lamps, and that there would be, uh, the Levitical orchestra would come out, play music, and it would be a huge celebration. It's by those very lamps that were meant to be lit and shine all throughout the city that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I mean, that would have been stunning. You see, it wasn't random. Jesus stood there by the lamps. Everyone knew what he was saying. He was saying, I am the light of the world. Okay, so that's the context, but what does it mean? It means this, that this is the glory of the Lord. I am God. I am the very light of the world. Now, of course, the entire Old Testament is filled with illusion of light, right? Psalm 27, I'm gonna read a few Psalms. The Psalms are the Psalm book of the people of God. So all of these people would have been trained to sing these songs. Psalm 27, train the people to sing, the Lord is my light and my salvation. So when Jesus says, I am the light, he's saying, I am your salvation. The very word of God in Psalm 119 is the light to guide the path of those who cherish his instruction. Jesus is saying, I am the light who guides your path. I am the very word of God. Psalm 44, three, in that Psalm, the light is the Lord in action for his people. You see, you remember also in Exodus, the pillar, the cloud, it was God's protection for his people. Do you remember what happened? God was leading them out Pharaoh all of a sudden decides it's not a good idea to let them go, so he chases them. And when he's chasing them, they find themselves backed into a corner up against a body of water, and he's pursuing them. And what happens? The cloud goes from in front of them, goes over them to go behind them, to protect them, to fight for them. So Psalm 44.3, it picks up on this. The light is the Lord in action, protecting his people. For his people. So Jesus is saying, I am not only the light, I am the one who will protect my people. Maybe in this context, the most important one would be Zechariah 14. In this prophecy, we know that continual light on the last day will be followed by the promise of living waters flowing from Jerusalem. 
So here we are. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. This is the last day I have come into the world. I am the light, and anyone who comes to me will have living waters coming out of them, overflowing in them. So it must have been stunning that Jesus stands right here with all of this richness and says, I am the light of the world. Now for me, this has been pretty abstract, honestly. I mean, I think when I think about it, uh, I never slow down to understand the context, to really understand the weight in that moment of what would have been felt to know what exactly Jesus was proclaiming. I hope now it's less abstract, and it certainly was not abstract to the people here hearing Jesus. Right after Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he says this, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So here it is again, last week in the I am statement. Jesus says, I am the bread, what? Of life. Now I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will have the light of life. You see, Jesus has come to give life. And there is no life outside of the light of God. So with that, I just wanna ask this, our last question this morning. And this will be the longest one. How does it apply? So if we know the context, we know what's going on, we know what it means that Jesus is God, the light of life, then how does it apply? Well, I wanna say three things. First, uh, light elicits a response. All right, what do you do when you wanna wake someone up? It's dark. When I was a teenager, this happened to me a lot. So maybe you have teenagers or children or husbands who like to sleep in on the weekend. What do you do when you walk in? Well, you flick on the light. And one of two things happens. You either put the covers over your head and hide from it, or you open your eyes and you sit up. Either way, light elicits a response. So if Jesus is the light of the world, we cannot remain apathetic. We either run to him or we run away from him. That's how it works. If the light has come into the world, it will elicit a response, either for it or against it. It will be either perceived as a threat or as mercy, as attack or as blessing. But if we're listening, if we're just listening and we remain apathetic and there's no desire to respond, then the light may not have dawned in our hearts. If the light is not eliciting a response over time, then the light may not have dawned. So my question then is, how are you responding to the light? How are you responding to the light right now? And that leads me to my second application here of how does this apply, that light reveals and exposes. So in John, light brings sight. It brings the ability to see things. Things are seen in the light. And in the Bible, when God shows up, who is light, people either fall down as though they are dead 
or they try to hide from him. Those are two very common responses. And we, we see this happen all of the time, right? We see this happen when, when light or exposure or something is revealed. There's always a response, but there is an exposure. So um, my kids, right? Even my youngest, who's two and a half, it's not uncommon for me to walk into a room or into her room and she's doing something that she's not supposed to be doing, right? You know this. Now, I could have gone with adults because this happens to us. I'll get to us in a minute. But it even happens with the smallest of kids. I walk in and it just depends on the day. It just depends on what she's doing. But I'll walk in and one of two things will either happen. One, she'll either physically run away from me before I say anything or she'll run away or she'll go hide or something. Or she will immediately stop doing what she's doing and come to me and tell me about it. Before I say anything, I just, my presence comes into the room. She either runs and hides or tries to get away or she looks at me and she's ready to receive whatever's next. It's pretty incredible. It really is incredible to watch. But even when she comes to me, but especially when she runs on her face, I see her eyes darting away from me. I see shame in her face. I see remorse. And then eventually we get to restoration. We get to repentance. So we see this happen in kids, but we do this too, don't we? Don't we do this too if anyone even surprises us and we're doing something, maybe it's not even wrong, but we don't wanna be seen doing it. And then we hide. Maybe not physically, we don't run and dart behind a desk but we feel it, don't we? We feel that in us like, oh. Sometimes we send an email to the wrong person. You know what's really hard is when a bunch of people are texting you and you're just responding and then you realize that was about someone else and I sent it to the wrong person. Has that ever happened to you? It's not good. I think that's why they put that, um, that uh, emoji uh, with the, the red face is for that right there. So you can send that and apologize. Why? It's no longer hidden from that person. It's no longer hidden from anyone. It's now exposed. It's in the light. What's interesting is that there is an unwillingness frequently. There's a temptation towards unwillingness to come into the light. And there's something about, uh, cho- well, there's something about perceiving ourselves to be in control. There's something about perceiving ourselves to have power. Now, this is true, especially of men I've experienced, but I think it's true of all of us. And that is, even when we get the courage, we understand that we need to bring something into the light. It's been exposed. At least part of it's been exposed. Or we decide we need to bring this into light. We need to bring something to the light and expose it. It's very rare to get the whole story in the first first time. I I experience this all the time. When I talk to people who come in my office or I talk to people in general or when I'm the one talking, it's very rare for everything to come out the first time. And I'm not sure why that is. I think it's just, there's something about us where we wanna hold on to this last illusion of control, this last illusion of power, because if we can do that, we don't have to be fully vulnerable. Because coming into the light 
is really, really vulnerable. I mean, just, just to start at a low scale, some of us are afraid to even get on the weight scale because we don't want to know. Some of us are afraid to look in the mirror at bright light because we don't want to see the blemishes. Some of us don't even want to look at our finances, like they're our finances. They're not going anywhere, but we don't want to look at it because we don't want to know the whole picture because then we're afraid we might have to change. We just want to keep living in a little bit of darkness, just enough so that we don't have to change. I think ultimately we want control because we don't want to be vulnerable. But in fact, when we are completely vulnerable, that's when we begin with the Lord's help to take control of our life. Now, I don't mean take control in the sense that we are the Lord of our life. I mean take control in the sense that sanctification is the process of cooperating with God, right? We have agency, right? God shines the light. We can choose to run or we choose to come to him. And when we choose to come to him and be completely vulnerable, that's when healing happens. It starts to happen. That's what the light does. It doesn't just reveal and expose, but it actually heals. So when we come out of hiding to be exposed, we begin to heal. Now, this is absolutely scary, no doubt about it. Uh, There's terror in the light. Here's a quote by uh, an American author that I read some of, Frederick Buechner. He says this, if there is a terror about darkness because we cannot see, there's a terror about light because we can see. There is a terror about light because much of what we see in the light about ourselves and our world, we would rather not see and we'd ultimately rather not have seen. This runs so deep, so deep. We see it already in Genesis chapter three. There's an inclination to hide. But Jesus says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. There it is. Remember, to come into the light is to receive life. So Jesus, as the light does shine, He shines in and exposes. Now, this is a little bit of a sidebar, but I think it's really important, okay? Some people will point to John 15, verse 15, John 8, verse 15, and say, hey, don't judge me. Don't judge me. This whole light thing, I can do whatever I want. Even Jesus says right here, I do not judge. Anytime you talk about revealing, anytime you talk about exposing, anytime you talk about sin, anytime you talk about repentance, increasingly people will say, don't judge me. Because it is an aside, I just want to succinctly read a quote from a commentator that I think is very helpful and very important for us to keep in mind. He says this, the light that God intends to bring is a light of illumination to the whole world. It's the same light that shines relentlessly into the world's dark corners. And when it does so, it brings judgment. Throughout the gospel, it's clear that Jesus had not basically come to judge the world or Israel or individuals. But it's also clear that the fact of his coming to bring rescue, salvation, life, and hope would inevitably have the effect 
of condemning those who didn't want any of those things. Those who were so steeped in evil that the coming of light was bad news for them, not good news. You see, when the light of the world comes in and you're not attracted to it, but you run from it, you are condemning yourself. Jesus is the light of life. And if Jesus is not good news to you and the message that he brings is not good news to you, then it's not rescue for you. It's not salvation for you. It's not life for you. It's not hope for you because it's not good news. It's actually judgment for you. It's actually death for you. And so the invitation into light is the invitation into life. And although it's scary, it is good news. And I know if you're like me, even when you experience it as scary, you ultimately experience it as freedom. You ultimately experience it as life and hope. And the last thing, so Jesus comes as the light of the world and it applies by eliciting a response by revealing and exposing. Lastly, light enables you to see. I'll never forget a field trip that I took when I was a kid. Uh, Probably first grade. I I was trying to remember this morning. I can't remember exactly when it was. First or third grade, something like that. I'm from Southern Indiana and we go to this cave called Marengo Cave. And they, it was normal for them to do field trips. They would take you, once you got to the, the deepest part of the cave, and they would ask everyone, all of us young little kids, they'd say, if we turn off the lights, do you think you'd be able to see? Do you think your eyes will get used to it like it does in the dark at your house? I still remember uh, what she looked like, the tour guide. And uh, I thought, yes, of course I'll be able to see. So <clears throat> I'm with my friends and the path is lit by these light bulbs and she flicks a switch and it's completely dark. And you know, if you've experienced darkness in a cave, it's palpable. I mean, you can, it's like you can feel it on your face. I don't know if it's just your eyes straining so hard, trying to adjust and you, I can just feel it. And it began to feel like heavier and heavier and heavier. And I would put my hands in front of my face and I would try to see and I couldn't see. And the longer it went, the more uneasy you could hear all of the little kids becoming. And then eventually, finally, a flashlight turns on. It was a huge relief. We could see again, right? So can you imagine if someone like me, even at the beginning said, of course I'll be able to see when you turn the lights off. Can you imagine if at the end, after everyone had just experienced that, someone would say, I saw the whole time. I could see you, I saw you, you were scared, I saw your face. How ridiculous would that be, right? It was dark, it was like you were blind, it was impossible to see. Well, the heartbreaking thing about this whole section is that the religious leaders increasingly claimed to be able to see when every time they opened their mouth, it was clear they were blind. If we follow this forward to Chapter nine, verse five, Jesus again says he's the light of the world, but that time it's when he heals a blind man. So he takes mud and he rubs it on his hands and he puts it on the man's face and he heals him. And this man who was blind could now see. And the religious leaders asked him, what happened to you? And he just 
throws it down like this. I don't know, but what I do know is this. I couldn't see. Jesus healed me. Now I can see. And what did they, how did they respond? Well, he healed you on the Sabbath. They were blind. So the ironic thing is that the man who was blind now can see, and those who thought they could see, who said they could see, were actually blind. So what can we, what do we gather from this? What do we learn from this? We understand that in order to see, the light has to be turned on. You see, in that cave, there's nothing I could do to make myself see. I was completely blinded. I was completely blind. And I was at the mercy of this high school or college tour guide to turn the lights back on. Light had to come from outside. So let me ask you this question. Do you see right now? Can you see? Is the good news good to you? Is the light inviting to you? Do you see and feel and experience the aroma of life? Are you increasingly turning from your sin and being vulnerable first with the Lord and then with others? Can you see? And if you can see, this is the beauty of the gospel. You see, no other religion does anyone say, I am the light. They say, I can point you to the light. I have the teaching of the light. But Jesus says, no, I am the light. Anyone who follows me has the light of life. So you see, if you can see, the beauty of the gospel is that you did not do it. The light was turned on and it rushed in to the darkness of my heart and it rushed in to the darkness of your heart. And without Jesus... We have to understand this. Without Jesus, I can't truly see because I don't know where I'm going. And you can't truly see because you don't know where you're going. Without Jesus, without the light of life, I'm searching for meaning. I'm longing for significance. But Jesus, when he comes and shines light into my heart and into your heart, we know where we're going. Our life has meaning and significance. So the crucial thing to grasp here is that in order for us to see, the light must shine into our darkness. Our darkness has to be removed. And you know what happens when you turn on a light in a dark place, just like in that cave. What happens to the darkness when the light comes in? It's gone. It's amazing. Presence of light, darkness is eradicated. Now that's not gonna happen to us fully until we're in glory. But it happened. It's secure. If you're in Christ, that darkness in you will be completely eradicated because you will be glorified. It's no coincidence that when Jesus died on the cross, the light of the world hanging on the cross, that everything went dark. It's no coincidence. The light of the world died and everything went dark. But what was happening on the cross is that when the sky went dark, it was Jesus taking your darkness on him. It was the darkness of the world, the sin of the world. He became sin so that you and I would have life. 
that you and I would experience the light of life, that you and I could follow him. He took our darkness upon himself so that we could partake in his light. That is the gospel. That is our hope. That is what encourages us. That is what leads us and guides us and changes us. When we come to the table in a moment, it's the same thing. For you to come is to admit that apart from Jesus, you're filled with darkness. To come is to admit your need. With that, let's prepare our hearts and let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy. It is so merciful that you would not require us to clean ourselves up before we come in the dark, but you completely surprise us and you rush in with your light. And we ask that you would continually rush in our hearts, eradicate darkness in our lives and in this church. Help us be more vulnerable with one another to come to each other in relationship. It's a scary thing. But we ask that as we are changed by you and as we experience the light of life in relationship with you, that we then would increasingly reflect that light in the world, that we would become your lights in the world.